Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. Mr. Gorbachev... Tear down this wall. The Cold War, the geopolitical chess match that had defined the 20th century, was over. Communism, like fascism, had been defeated. And, as we approached the new millennium, the end of history was declared. Liberal democracy had emerged triumphant as the final form of government and there would be no more war as every nation on earth transitioned towards it. But things didn't quite turn out that way. At this hour... American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. I authorize the armed forces of the United States to begin a limited military action in Libya. The Russian President Vladimir Putin authorized a special military operation in Ukraine's Donbass region. The optimistic assumptions of liberalism are failing us, internationally and domestically argues political philosopher John Gray. In this conversation, he explains why we must perceive politics differently, tragically, to create any hope of escaping current crises. Enjoy. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one. It's the Politics Show Pubcast. John Gray, hello. How are you? Hello, hello, Ali. Very glad to be here. Good. Very glad to have you here. Um, And welcome to Joe Towers. Before those unfamiliar... Uh, with your work. I'm not sure who they are, but if they are, could you introduce yourself? Tell us who you are in your own words. Well, for 30 years, I was a um, professional academic, um, historian of ideas, political theorist and philosopher. Then in um, uh, 2007, 15 years ago, I um, uh, left uh, to take voluntary early retirement in order to be a a full-time writer and um, shifted, I think, from being an academic writer to being a voice, simply one voice among other voices. And I prefer that because if you are still a professor, and I enjoyed my time in academic life, particularly the contact with um, students and so on, but if you're an academic, then you it seems as if you speak from a kind of position of authority, which I think is often not merited. So I prefer to be a voice among other voices, which 
people can listen to if they wish to listen to, and if they, if they find it interesting and learn something from it, I'm very happy. But um, I don't want what I'm saying to be taken as any kind of authoritative uh, judgment. Very good. And your voice has turned back to Hobbes, yes, to the Leviathan, to the state yes. of nature with this new book, The New Leviathans. Yes. Why? Why have you gone back to Hobbes? Well, he was one of the first, if not the first, political philosopher that I read back in the 1960s. And at that time, the first thing that uh, impressed me about him was his prose style. He has a very clear, stark uh, English prose style. In fact, it's the first big work of Leviathan, Hobbes' Leviathan of philosophy uh, in English. And it's a very aphoristic, tough uh, style, which um, expresses um, stark, as I've, I've said, a kind of stark lapidary style, which um, re partly reflects his tone of mind, which is that he wanted to sweep away everything that was superfluous, which for him included the entire philosophy of um, the ancient Greeks and Romans and also the uh, medieval philosophers he thought there were. Uh, all misleading uh, because they treated concepts or words, he would even say, as if they were realities when they were human constructions and um, couldn't ever fully capture a highly fluid and sometimes contradictory reality. So he wanted to sweep all that away and, as it were, start from scratch. And that's what he tried to do in, in um, Leviathan and in his other writings. Um, Leviathan is the best known. It's the most notorious. He copies of it were burned in front of um, the Bodleian Library in Oxford. He was threatened with uh, charges of blasphemy and atheism at a time when that could be fatal. And during the Civil War, the English Civil War in the um, um, mid-17th uh, century, he fled the country, uh, went to Europe, uh, met various people, famous astronomers, philosophers, and politicians. But he was there for his own safety, he believed, and I think his fears for his life were were not um, uh, ill-founded. He could easily have um, uh, suffered in a bad way. So why go back to Hobbes now? Well, say he was the first um, one I uh, think, or I, first great political philosophy I came across. And I was impressed then, uh, as I say, by what he had tried to be, which was a realist. Um, and he thought that uh, the default condition of human society wasn't harmony, wasn't peace, it was conflict. And uh, I think he's right about that. I think it's easy uh, to fall into a state of nature. And the state of nature here, by the way, as I'm sure you realize, and some of your, many of your watchers might, might uh, already understand, but I'll gloss it anyway, isn't a state before there is society. It isn't a prehistoric condition in which there was no society. Uh, the state of nature is a, is a condition of anarchy or general conflict into which any society can fall at almost any time. And it can have various causes. In his day, it was a civil war. There were wars of religion as well. There were, religion and politics were tangled up as they are now again in various parts of the world. And um, he was writing for that. He had experienced in his own life. He fled the country. He was writing for that. And he was attempting to come up with a, a solution to those kinds of conflicts, um, a prescription for peace, a way of achieving a project of peace, um, which used the very minimum of morality and the very minimum of assumptions. And for him, the chief one was self-preservation. He thought that if he stripped everything else out, um, what people wanted most was self-preservation. Uh, he allowed 
There were other motives. He said people cared a lot for their reputation. He said here and there they'll give up their lives for trifles, like reputation. He thought that humans compared themselves to each other. They were uh, uh, what's later been called mimetic creatures. They copy each other and compare it with themselves with each other. So he didn't say um, uh, self-preservation was the only uh, um, human uh, motive, but it was a very dominant one, and he thought it was, an, it was strong enough to enable human beings to create out of the chaos, out of the anarchy in which they could slip, a sovereign, or as he called it, a leviathan, um, uh, that would bring peace. And they would have a kind of covenant or contract. Now, even then, all those years ago, back in the 1960s, early 70s, when I was reading Hobbes, I thought that was um, unrealistic. Um, for various reasons, some of which I talk about in the book. Um, one is, um, if human beings are really so mistrustful of each other and so afraid of each other, one point that's worth mentioning is that, although some people represent Hobbes as being as saying that the pursuit of power is the chief human motive, it isn't true for him. In, for Hobbes, uh, people pursue power because they're afraid of one another. Uh, the dominant human passion in Hobbes's theory is fear, not power. Well, let's talk about that in a little bit more detail then, John, yes. because over the course of this conversation, I'd like to focus both on the failures of liberalism internationally yes. and also domestically. Yes. And seeing as we're talking about peace, obviously one of the most sort of famous proponents of that idea on the international scene is probably Francis Fukuyama and the yes. end of history in the 1990s. Yes. Um, the Soviet bloc falls. We're going to live in this peaceful, harmonious, liberal yes. society. Yes. Um, obviously, it didn't quite turn out to be true. <laughs> um, did it? Why, no. Why isn't it true? Well, uh, this, um, I think I can explain partly at least what happened and why there were the illusions there were then. And I can do that partly by um, an anecdote. I was in uh, Washington on and off in 1989, 1990, around about that time, 91, when the Soviet Union collapsed. And Fukuyama's original essay had come out in a in a periodical in the spring of 89, in other words, before the war went down. But it was clear that Soviet communism was imploding. And um, it, it, I think it, it, it summarized very well an impression which was not only Fukuyama's, but which is quite common by then in, in America, particularly in Washington, which was that they'd won, the West democratic capitalism had won, and um, against Soviet communism, and therefore, therefore, they thought, um, would continue winning and would be the only legitimate political system in the world. Now, there'd been a lot of revisionism, including by Fukuyama himself. He's a very pleasant man. I know him. I've come, come debated and talked to him many times in, the, in subsequent years. But uh, revisionism, I never said that there'd be no big conflict. I never said that. I never said, well, I can tell you, having been around at the time, it was all taken very seriously. In Washington, some of the big foundations which had um, uh, been given grants to um, for foreign policy work cut, uh, stopped the grants. Don't need it anymore. Don't need it. History's over. It's, it's all over. Uh, now, he now says that what he meant by that was not that history was over in the every everyday sense. And I think he said he was capital letter history. The his history is a succession of big ideas. And the big idea that it won out in um, the Cold War was uh, what he called democratic capitalism. Now, my criticism of that 
was not retrospective. I published a piece in um, October 1989. In other words, his article appeared in August 1989 uh, in saying this is not uh, the end of history. It could be the end of liberalism. What it is is the resumption of history on rather traditional lines. What will happen from now on is that all the conflicts that were frozen in the Cold War, both within the Soviet Union and elsewhere, will become live as the Soviet Union vanishes. And there will be conflicts mostly, maybe using new technologies, but of a very traditional kind. There'll be conflicts over resources. There'll be conflicts uh, of a religious kind between different religious groups, um, sectarian groups. There'll be ethnic conflicts. There'll be, so to speak, quasi-imperial conflicts. That's what will happen. And uh, that was considered, it was a very funny time for me, um, very um, entertaining in some ways, because that was considered apocalyptically pessimistic. In other words, when I said history will go on as before, as usual, as normal, apocalyptic, apocalyptic. So in other words, their baseline, the baseline of the people, nearly everyone said this, conservatives, liberals, social democrats, early Blairites, they all said it, apocalyptic mechanism, it's not going to be anything like that. Um, uh, their baseline was that everything is going to be completely different. By the way, one person may not uh, be familiar to many of your readers except as a name. One person didn't say that. Margaret Thatcher, when she was told about um, Fukuyama's ideas at the end of history, the beginning of nonsense, <laughs> she never swallowed it. For all her many errors and faults, she thought that history would just go on. Although she too came to think of Thatcherism, which I think was a domestic product of domestic political um, conflicts in Britain, as a sort of universal prescription. So she fell in, into the actually in, almost into the Fukuyama's comedy. It had worked, she thought, mistakenly, you know, in Britain, so it could work everywhere. So, but to go back to your, your question, Ali, uh, why didn't it work like Well, one reason was all these conflicts that had been suppressed came out. And the other was that the Cold War itself was extremely anomalous. The Cold War was, in ideological terms, a conflict between two Enlightenment ideologies, liberalism and communism, and communism uh, um, uh, lost out in that um, conflict. But historically, there are only a small range of the political ideas, a very small range, and that have been fighting, uh, fighting among themselves and for primacy and for legitimacy. Um, uh, uh, very countless types of nationalism, anarchism, environmentalist ideologies, even in the 19th and 20th century, fascism. Also, the a wide range of ideologies have always existed in the world, and uh, I thought that would just that would become again. So to, to think that this binary conflict, if you remove one of the elements of the binary conflict, communism, then the, the idea that remains was sweep everything before it was a complete mistake. The trouble was. As is often the case, I thought that that would that insight would um, um, uh, spread uh, after 1989, 1990, 1991. It didn't. Uh, what happened instead was that um, um, the idea then became: well, if history stopped or it's stopping, um, we'll accelerate the stoppage because there seem to be some parts of the world are lagging, mm. stuck in dictatorship or tyranny, they won't accept um, democratic capitalism. So we'll accelerate the end of history. And that was, in ideological terms, uh, the, the background for the um, Iraq war. It wasn't the only reason the Iraq war happened, but without this neoconservative ideology, 
I don't think, I was, again, I was in Washington in the run-up to the Iraq war more than once. And um, uh, I think it, the neoconservatives prepared the ground in terms of public opinion and in terms of intellectually for the Iraq war. They said, this, is, this model, the model of democratic capitalism, the American model, essentially an American version of it, is spreading universally and it will spread all over the Middle East. And, um, but we can trigger that by toppling Saddam and installing a version of this of, of this of this model. Now, what was what they failed to um, grasp it was a Hobbesian point, which is that um, if and I made this again. I made this before the invasion in uh, March um, uh, twenty three. I made this in point in February twenty three in the uh, New Statesman, uh, which is that if you if you topple uh, a tyrant, a leader, a despot, which Saddam was. Um, who's been there for a long time and who's constructed around himself um, uh, a whole regime. If you topple the regime, there's a great risk of destroying the state because mm. the state and the regime have become one side. The risk of doing this, they hadn't even landed yet, the Americans, the risk of doing this is that the state of Iraq will break up. And that happened because um, the Kurds split off, uh, ISIS came into being, uh, the Yazidi people were subject to genocidal attacks. Women were raped and sexually enslaved. Gay men were burnt alive in cages. All kinds of truly hor horrifying things happened, even worse than what had happened under Saddam's uh, tyranny. So the Hobbesian point there, which is a very hard point, hard for many people to accept, is that a tyranny can be less harmful in human terms than anarchy. And that's a kind of point uh, which in the 20th century was hard to understand because the greatest crimes of the 20th century, the Holocaust, uh, the Soviet um, gulags, um, Pol Pot, and China's uh, uh, repressions were all done by states, by very strong states. So liberals thought um, the state is the enemy. We've got to, not that we can do without a state, we've got to limit it, we've got to have count rights, we've got to have huge systems of law to, to confine it as narrowly as possible to its, it can do things like welfare, but it's all got to be confined with a strict a straight jacket of law to avoid these terrible um, crimes of states. And I think that was reasonable in the um, 20th century, but we're now almost a quarter of the way through the 21st century. And in the 21st century, we have the evidence of Iraq, what happened in Iraq, and then later on, after everyone said after Iraq, immediately after Iraq, we'll never do this again, they went and did it. In Libya, that wasn't mainly the Americans. They went along with it, but it was mainly Cameron, David Cameron in this country and uh, um, the French who wanted to do this. And it was almost obvious that the same result would happen there. In fact, it's been almost worse because the state of anarchy in which um, Libya was plunged after the toppling of um, Gaddafi continued, and for a long while there was no government. Now there are two, at least two, and people smuggling and organized um, human trafficking uses this vacuum of, um, of, uh, of power as a base. And so, by the way, when Western, when you hear British or other Western leaders say, well, the solution is to lock up the people smugglers, okay, but there's no state in Libya. At least two governments. Who's going to do the locking up? How's it going to work? There's nothing there whereby you can do it. And the West, 
uh, in particular the British and the French, created this vacuum. So nothing was learned. The basic Hobbesian uh, lesson was not learned. And I think even now, so I say I'm, I'm usually over-optimistic, contrary to what people say about me, is I thought the lesson hasn't been learned, even now. To what extent can we view those choices as tragedy, mm. as, as tragic decisions? You know, the tragic view accepts that there are irresolvable yeah. dilemmas. Either you accept Saddam's, Saddam's continued yeah. tyranny, yes. the torture of the Kurds, etc., or yeah. you depose him and you have the chaos and anarchy of ISIS and the power vacuum. Yeah. You know, if not on the basis of in liberal internationalism, which yeah. we've outlined, to take another example from the 21st century, how should we, Western decision makers, policy makers, be reacting and viewing the invasion of Ukraine? Yes. Tragically. Is, yes. It a, is, it a, is it a tragic choice? At oh, I think that is a tragic choice. I mean, even more than the other ones, because the, in the case of Ukraine, the West has to choose. And one of the features of tragic choices is that they're unchosen. Um, the most deeply tragic choices are the ones we can't avoid making. Tragedy is more in politics and in ethics, is more than the fact that human beings are imperfect. It's more than the fact that progress is always reversible. Tragedy in ethics and politics uh, is the recurring, a recurring encounter with options in which whatever you do, there are irreparable losses and even wrongs. That's tragedy. And I think Ukraine's like that. The earlier ones, I'm not sure, were tragic. Really weren't tragic. They were folly. Didn't have to invade. Didn't have to do anything. I mean, admittedly, there was terrible things were going on in Iraq and in Libya. Um, but you didn't have to do anything. Whereas in the case of Ukraine, that was, a, I still think, um, an act of... Uh, uh, aggression by um, Putin. I know there are theories in which he was responding to the expansion of NATO and so on, but if you actually look at his own rhetoric and even in a, a 5,000 word essay he penned at one point, he more than talking about that, he was talking about re, recreating uh, um, a Russian realm, a Russian which was much bigger than Russian Russia had become uh, after the communist uh, collapse of communism. So um, I don't think the the argument that it was all or primarily a result to Western expansion really, really hot. So it was an act of aggression. And also, it, and this is partly what makes it tragic, it was, it rapidly acquired, if it didn't have right from the start, it may have done, uh, I would say almost genocidal tones because they were talking about there was no such thing as a Ukrainian culture, or if there was, it had to be eliminated and replaced. That was, a, that's a genocidal project. So, um, it started as a crime. A major crime, uh, the, the the Ukraine uh, situation, then became a tragedy in the sense that um, it was necessary to resist this, and so the terrible loss of lives, the destruction of cities, um, uh, going on uh, in the country alongside um, uh, Russian um, barbarism. I mean, meaning by that torture, deportation, uh, abduction of children, uh, all these terrible. Uh, echoes of the Second World War and, and before come back, along with trench warfare, have come back. So it's, it, was a, it became a tragic conflict. The risk now is that it goes on from being tragic to becoming an absurdity because um, 
Um, I don't think it's become clear that the, um, I mean, the lot, once Putin realized his disastrous error, he thought he could do it in three days. And uh, by the way, some Western intelligence agencies said the same. They said he'll, he'll have, you know, some Western um, observers say he'll, he'll be in Kiev in uh, three or four days or a week. And uh, that's what they were talking about extracting Zelensky, right? Because they didn't say they were. He'd be unfortunately, I mean, he didn't go. He didn't go. And um, he refused to go. I don't need transport, he said. I need weapons. And so they've carried on fighting. And I think that was heroic and, uh, and tragic because when, when Putin um, absorbed the fact that he made a disastrous error, he didn't back off. Mm. You know, there's the, there's a story, I think it's perhaps well sourced that he, when he was growing up as a poor uh, child in a family in, that had survived the um, Leningrad siege in the Second World War in semi-bombed out part of that, he learned how to fight rats. He learned how to, how to physically fight rats. He said, but don't put rats into a corner, they'll jump at your throat. Um, so he's a tough guy in every way. So, so he, um, um, he may also you know, be uh, cruel and various other, but he's tough. And so he didn't then give up. What he did actually was to learn from experience and start to take the long, uh, the long view. If he could keep at it long enough, if he could pour more, enough human R Russian young men into the meat grinder, and of course he's got more than them, more of them than the West has, more than Ukraine. If he keeps pouring them in and just continues to do that, Western um, unity around um, supporting Ukraine and even European unity will fracture. And that has started to happen. And um, it's clear now in conflicts between Poland and Ukraine. Uh, it's clear in um, doubts, uh, more than doubts, uh, the top three contenders for the Republican nomination in the United States are all Ukraine skeptics. One or other of those three is going to win. It might or might not be Trump. It might might be Trump. And whatever is going to happen, if if, if, if then uh, Republicans win the election, the presidential election, then it's all over. Mm. Um, it'll only be a matter of whether it's um, uh, a naked deal with uh, Putin as uh, Trump wants or something more protracted. But basically, it's all over because the Ukrainians are heavily dependent on. Um, American um, uh, support in in many ways. So um, the question now is if 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 the the sort of program of the West reflects the Ukrainian demand for a restoration of full sovereignty, including a retaking of Crimea, um, then you're moving beyond tragedy into something even worse, which is absurdity because uh, there's no way that. Um, um, the retaking of Crimea uh, is going to happen. Um, I mean, even it's forgotten now that even Gorbachev endorsed um, that annexation. Um, um, I think any Russian leader regarded the, uh, even the post-Putin leader, would not yield on that point. It would be, I mean, it's predominantly Russian area. Um, uh, they regarded it as having become part of Ukraine in the first place as a catastrophe, as an error. So pursuing, if, so if Western policy sort of mirrors the Ukrainian policy, I think it's, it's actually an unachievable goal they're looking at. If on the other hand it deviates from it, then you're back into tragedy. Mm. You're back into tragedy because um, um, uh, the risk, I guess, and I'm sure this is fully understood in the Ukrainian leadership, the risk is that the West will do a deal over the heads of Ukraine. They say they won't, they'll never do that, but 
that means they've been thinking about it. Mm. Um, um, uh, and that is this, so uh, that I think is probably if the war doesn't escalate, it's probably how the war will end. There will be a, a deal, there will be a partition. The question will be what are the borders, where they are, but it won't include retaking Crimea, not going to happen. Mm. Um, and probably it's not going to escalate either. The danger then, of course, and people point this out, and I think they're right, the danger is if, if, if Putin gets at least part of what he wants now, then he or some subsequent Russian leader um, will think they can have a go in the Baltic states and other parts of you. So, that's, so just in this situation, half tragic, half absurd, and um, um, whatever's done now, I mean, this is where it's tragic, will involve terrible losses. Now, um, there is a you know, a type of liberalism which said, well, that's exactly what we don't want. What we want is a world in which we don't have to take these tragic uh, choices, in which there aren't such tragic choices. The, my view, which is there will always be such a world because um, uh, it reflects the nature of human beings. Human beings have conflicting needs, conflicting desires, conflicting values, not, on, not only between one individual or group and other individuals, within each group and within each um, individual. That's just the way we are. And some of the best features of human beings, some of the noblest sacrifices and noblest um, resistance of human being comes from that feature of human, human beings. And so, so I've used Hobbes here, where Hobbes, get back to Hobbes, um, uh, because I think the choice between some kind of authoritarian or even tyrannical regime and um, uh, anarchy or a failed state is a real one mm. in many parts of the world, including even parts of the West. I mean, if Trump comes back to power in America, one, there'll be many reasons for that. We could discuss those later, but one reason would be um, um, that um, enough of the, hum of the American population feels insecure um, economically, and in other ways, they, they, you could say, "Well, this will, but this will be a more authoritarian regime." And say, "Well, I don't care so, if, if it gives me what I want." Of course, they may be deluded; they may have no intention of giving them what they want. But if they have a chance of greater security, or believe they have a chance of greater security, if they just have a perception that they might have under Trump, they may be willing to take the ga gamble on Trump uh, a second time. Uh, uh, um, even after seeing what Trump did when he was in office. Can we talk a little bit more then about what that new world order, if you yes. like, will look like if we accept that the sort of the liberal West's stated quest for universal democracy leading to universal peace, if that has to be abandoned? It's over. So what does the new world look like? Well, uh, a world of blocks and swing states. Um, the... Um, What's re-emerged is something like, not like the 1930s yet, at least. Hopefully it won't become as bad as that, but it could. But more like the world before the First World War. Before the First World War, there were a variety of empires in the world and a variety of big states in the world. Um, um, Russia, Britain, uh, um, Germany, um, America was on the sidelines, but already an emerging industrial powerhouse. There were these big states. And no hegemonic power. So what's really happening now, I think, is the, or has already happened, is that the, the United States remains enormously powerful in hardware military terms. Um, it uh, is still a powerhouse in some technological terms. It's a leader still in um, some areas of technology where China hasn't caught up. But it's really already ceded any um, 
hegemonic control or, or power over Latin America and, and the Middle East. I mean, what's happening in the Middle East is that Saudi Arabia and Israel and others are forming new alliances which take precedence over those with America um, and involve um, various understandings with China. And similarly, China is, um, has expanded to a great degree in, um, in uh, Latin America uh, and in Africa. Uh, even French power in Africa um, has collapsed in uh, Mali and other uh, uh, parts, of, parts of Africa. So um, um, it's in many ways a post-American world. Um, America remains the biggest of the big powers. I mean, even though the economy might now be slightly shorter on some measures that are all rather vague, indefinite measures than the Chinese economy. And even though the Chinese economy is now definitely um, in trouble, you know, debt, a catastrophic error was made by Xi over um, uh, uh, COVID, went on much too long, was much too severe, even though some in the West took it as a model of how we should react. It's had deep damaging effects on China, and, and there are these debt problems affecting the property market, and huge levels of youth unemployment, by the way, almost like in, or worse even than um, in Western countries like Britain, I mean, officially about 20%. Some people think that if, it, if it's measured by people staying at home and not doing very much, not having, might be twice that. So colossal levels of youth unemployment and of inequality, so they've got these very severe China um, um, uh, internal problems. Um, um, which they're struggling with, as Western um, countries do. But they are continuing to make strides in technology. They're continuing to, uh, they have a huge uh, um, quantities of um, capital invested in various parts of the world. And this might be an important point, because this is not the new Cold War. One of the most misleading uh, sort of bits of mid-brow, sort of midwit, midwitchery. Uh, which goes into the new Cold War. It's not the new Cold War. In the new, in the old Cold War, the, the actual Cold War that ended in, uh, in the 90s, the early 90s, 1991, uh, the former Soviet Union had very little direct involvement with Western economies. Western economies are now codependent with the Chinese economy. So um, that makes it a much more intractable conflict. It's not something that actually can be won in the way that the Cold War uh, um, was run. So that's another projection of the past into the future. That past has gone forever. That past is a retrieval. But also, given that America, the American economy is in many ways codependent with the Chinese economy, um, Tesla and Apple are both semi-Chinese companies, got huge productive facilities there. Uh, America imports large parts, sections of its medical supplies from China, antibiotics, and um, things like that. Um, the idea that the, that that is like a, the Cold War in the sense that it's a conflict that can be won by America. I think it's a complete illusion. There can be uh, uh, China is in many ways. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it is. A, I think it is a threat to West countries, including Britain. There is espionage. There's no doubt about that. There are the, these are real threats. But the idea that um, uh, it can be defeated or destroyed as a a state or a regime is for the birds. I mean, if the Chinese economy did implode the way the Soviet economy, the post-Soviet economy imploded after communism, the result would be completely catastrophic for the rest of the world economy. Whereas when the 
Russian, the post, post-communist Russian government would blow. It didn't mean much at all for the, for the rest of the world. It would be utter catastrophe for the world if that happened. Then we would be in the 30s. We'd be in the 30s in the sense that there'd be millions of unemployed. Australia, which depends on Chinese mining and commodity prices, et cetera, would be, would be in disastrous shape. America, insofar as co, uh, co-dependent with China, would be, it would be a disaster. So um, that's not the way forward. And if it, if, it, if it were to happen, I don't think it probably will happen, but it would be a, it would be a, a, a complete disaster. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Shut the fridge. It's the Politics Show podcast. Let's turn to um, politics domestically. Yes. In your... Writings, not just actually in the book, The New Leviathans. But also New Statesman. Yeah, your New Statesman writing as well. Where, by the way, I have a fortnightly column now just. (laughs) Wonderful. Uh, Plug it. Plug it all the time. It becomes evident, though, that liberal democracy is sort of Mm -hmm. faced with two threats, populism and, well, either alt-liberalism or Mm hyper-liberalism. Call it it Mm -hmm. what you will. First of all, let's start with populism. How do you define populism and where do you see it in British politics? Well, I define them as being into hyper-liberalism or neoliberalism, which can have more or less extreme forms, as being interrelated or complementary or, as some people used to dialectically. So what, what liberals call populism is the political backlash against the social disruption produced by their policies, which liberals don't understand or deny. That's what populism is. This year. I'm seeing David Cameron. Why did this? Oh, it's populism. Well, where did it come from? Where did it come from? The devil? You know, was it just solely whipped up by a few demagogues? Well, I mean, there have been demagogues throughout the last 50, 30, 40, 50 years, forever. Uh, why, why did they start attracting uh, popular support? Why did voters start supporting them? The reason, I think, was that um, the type of liberalism that prevailed after the end of the Cold War was a was kind of narrow shallow type of market liberalism, which hadn't learned the lessons that um, liberals and social democrats of earlier generations learned after the Second World War. After the Second World War, all of Western Europe, including Britain, uh, adopted forms of social democracy and government intervention with the aim of preventing another Great Depression. The people who were around there had either lived themselves directly through that depression. They knew that capitalism was a fragile system and prone to booms and busts. Um, so they thought that a whole range of measures, welfare measures, financial measures, um, uh, fiscal, all kinds of policies needed to be implemented by governments. 
to prevent that happening again. And so in Western Europe, at least you had 30 years of um, peace and stability. Uh, um, um, that lesson was forgotten at the end of the Cold War or repressed at the end of the Cold War. The idea then was that um, um, you could set up a system of rules, central banks would be given independence, they would apply these rules, and the system would be self-stabilizing. Um, uh, and if there were losers in this, and it would be, of course, by then, from uh, uh, globalization had, was advancing, um, um, it was a much more open system than the, the post-Second World War system had been. Um, so there was a global competition for uh, uh, um, some kinds of wage labor um, and uh, uh, wages of particular parts, manual workers and others, and particular regions suffered badly in this. And in America, uh, large parts of the middle class experienced uh, no growth in incomes or hardly any, or even falls in incomes during 30 years in which the whole society got richer, taken if you measure it all. So some people were getting that, but not, not parts of the middle classes. And other parts of the population were um, completely abandoned because production was offshored. So if you're working in a a factory uh, um, uh, and, the, and the facility, the production facilities of the factory were offshored into China or somewhere or the Philippines or somewhere, then of course the wages there would be much lower for a long time and you would just become unemployed and you'd become more or less permanently unemployed. So um, it was from that that what liberals call populism emerged. Liberals think of populism as a sort of mixture of malevolence and stupidity. The malevolence are these wicked politicians. I don't deny that. I mean, Trump is like this for one. There are many examples in Europe. There are politicians hanging about in the background, always there, uh, who will um, exploit this. But what they're exploiting is something they did not themselves create. That's why they didn't have any influence, or hardly any influence. In um, the 1960s, say, uh, for example, now in Germany to take, I'll come back to Britain in a moment, uh, an example. Um, uh, the AFD, which is a far-right party, has 20% of the vote. Um, for many years, the right-wing parties, in, in far-right parties in, in, in Germany were kept beneath the level, I think it was 4%, there was a level below which they were, couldn't go without triggering various mm. responses. There were 2%, 3%. Why did that happen? Was it that the demagogues got cleverer, <laughs> more demagogic, more wicked, more evil. No, they remained exactly as they've been all along. It means that various problems, various um, uh, real-life situations to do with uh, economic and other kinds of security became more grave as a result of liberal overreach, as a result of that kind of the liberalism. Of that. So they, they're, they're really indicating. I mean, in this country, um, um, I did a broadcast um, uh, on, on BBC Radio, and even before that, I did uh, um, um, uh, 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 a an early podcast kind of thing in America, saying that there would be a referendum on Britain's membership of the European Union, and I believed then that it would the result would be leave, and that was a very off the wall kind of view at that time. Um, um, uh, but the reason I uh, believed that was that the um, uh, policies that had been pursued up to that point had left large parts of the country and large parts of the population 
in stagnant or even uh, declining and or even despairing conditions. So I thought that that would be taken. I thought that um, uh, the Brexit opportunity, which from Cameron's and the Conservative point of view and the point of view of Romania should never have happened. I mean, that was a mistake on his part. Um, would result in the result that it, it did do, but not because, and this is one feature of that debate that I very much um, disliked, not because masses of the population were stupid or racist or um, uh, had been misled by uh, Nigel Farage, no doubt all of those, or because the Russians had intervened in some sinister way, and no doubt they did, but it wasn't for any of those reasons, it was because large sections of the population who were not doing well or even doing badly believed correctly that they weren't being listened to, that no one was listening, and that no one would listen unless there was a big upheaval. The upheaval in Britain was Brexit. In America, it was Trump. So um, I wasn't surprised by either of those debates, of either of those results. In fact, I expected both of them for a kind of simple intuition. There were large enough sections of society that did not want and even feared and dreaded a continuation of the status quo. So they were willing to take a gamble on Brexit, on, on Trump, even if they didn't trust Trump, even if they disliked or even hated him. Uh, it was, a, and in Britain, even if they didn't know what Brexit really meant, or it was a sufficiently radical upheaval, they felt, to let their voices be heard and for something or other to happen. So I wasn't surprised in either case. So um, the kind of the, the revival of centrism now, is kind of one of the more entertaining absurdities of back in the age of absurdity now, which is that there are now podcasts, there are newspaper columns, everything sort of was going swimmingly in the 1990s. Everything was going well, wonderful. Well, I lived through it. It wasn't that wonderful. <laughs> the golden age. The golden age. It wasn't the golden age. And from, from that period, um, Lots of other things uh, emerged. Um, the Blair government, which uh, uh, then the Brown governments, which in, did do some good things and did expand welfare spending, uh, they also had um, uh, an obsession with house prices, and uh, the, the, for them that was an, almost the core of the economy, and that led, I think, directly and indirectly, to um, a situation now in which a whole generation of young people can't find any way to live affordably. Um, uh, so the problems of that period were, uh, uh, problems of, that, we, that we suffer now were rooted in that period. So the idea that you can unwind, if only we, if only we could have avoided, avoided what? We avoided, we'd have had to avoid the financial crisis of uh, 2008. Where did that come from? Was that from the glorious 90s? I mean, who did that? Who actually was responsible for that? Uh, if we'd only avoided that, if we'd only avoided the pandemic, you might say nobody and, and, and anticipated it. And just if we, what about the disastrous wars that the West got involved in? Um, uh, if all of that had been avoided, we could, we could, we could actually have an indefinite continuation of the nineties. Mm. Things have moved on since then. It's completely empty nostalgism, which shows only one thing: a complete poverty of political thinking. Political thinking, whether it be of the right, or of a new centre, or of the left, or, or off in some other, other kind of. Uh, continuum or spectrum, which engages with the realities that actually now exist, rather than wittering on, I mean, these sort of uh, withered, shriveled cast-offs uh, from that period, are now returning, um, zombie-like, as it were, to tell us that everything would be, would be fine if we could only get back to the center ground. See, the key thing about the center ground is that the center that they represented um, 
first of all, excluded huge parts of the population, parts of the north and uh, coastal towns and, and others. But it was essentially a political construction at Westminster. It wasn't actually didn't reflect what most British, what most Britons of all ethnicities or different actually wanted. It was something they can, they took a series of Westminster-centric policies and triangulated them. And what came out of that was the center. So the center was what? The center was years and years of austerity. Is that really the center? Was that the center? That was adopted by the conservatives and um, then by the Liberal Democrats under, under Clegg, and now seems to be adopted by Starmer's Labour Party. So they said, they're tracking. They said, we won't we, we, we will track conservative spending policies uh, because we we, um, we feel that nothing can be done, nothing can be done which uh, uh, creates any risk um, uh, uh, to the currency and, and to Britain's international position. Now, there is some real reason for that because we saw what could happen under Truss. Uh, that kind of brief, who was a, it was a kind of right-wing Corbynism, Truss, in, in economic terms. So we saw what can happen, but actually the trust phenomenon was more of an epiphany. It revealed the underlying uh, structural and systemic fragility of the British finance system, rather than causing it. And one of the things it revealed was that the pension system, <clears throat> the occupational pension, private pension system, uh, and many public pensions were riddled with complicated um, derivatives, which if the lessons of the derivatives are you know, many of your what, uh, viewers will know this, complicated financial instruments. So they were riddled with deliver, derivatives, <coughs> pensions, pension funds, um, which enabled them to make profits on the, on the basis that interest rates were very low, even when they could still make profits. But unfortunately, those derivatives were structured so that it, it, things would blow up if interest rates rose um, suddenly and and substantially, which they did. So in other words, they were based, these dangerous derivatives, um, instruments of mass financial destruction, I think a leading American investor, uh, Warren Buffett, called them. They, they, they would work only if interest rates remained at roughly the level, the lowest level they've been for 300 years. But history's not like that. You don't get that. It wouldn't. So it was a catastrophic error. And that was uh, revealed, not caused, revealed she, by the disastrous uh, trust experiment. So we are exposed, and it may be that we can't do very much, that this country can't do very much without provoking a kind of an attack by the, the market. It may be that the international flows of international capital have a kind of veto over us now. But that's because of things that were decisions that were made 30 in the 90s. Mm. So the 90s are what got us to where we are. They're not a golden era that mad people suddenly, or uh, uh, over a period of time, departed from the golden age and wantonly destroyed it. It's because the seeds of where we are now, the causes of it, uh, were then. So going back, if it was possible, it isn't possible. You would just actually have to go through, then go through the next 30 years again. Oh, um, it's not going to happen, all of that. But it's a sign of the extreme paucity of political imagination and the extreme um, poverty of uh, political thinking um, in this country uh, at the present time. But this, this, this provokes the question then, right, that 
essentially what these people mean is that the centre is is basically what we in Westminster in the political class view, think it is view, think yeah, it, view believe it to be yeah this is what we view as acceptable this, yeah. this, and you know in anything outside that's not the centre looking at the looking at recent history you know it's essentially technocracy it's austerity mm. and as you as you pointed out with the Labour Party whereas mm. populism for example, could mean, I don't know, um, nationalizing. Utility. Sig yes, yeah, It did mean that. I mean, left-wing Corbynite populism. I'm a strong opponent of Corbyn and remain so on the ground of his um, um, toleration of, uh, or um, kind of blind eye turned to anti-Semitism in the party, but also his, his uh, constant attempts to whitewash uh, Russia. I mean, I think just when he cast doubt on the Russian involvement in the murders in Solibri, it was terrible. Terrible moment for, uh, for for Labour, but in his economic policies, he was very popular, and um, uh, there is a, a, an, an undoubted and overwhelming majority in this country for taking utilities back into some public ownership, which I would strongly support if it was possible, mm. um, uh, or if it is possible. I think it could be made possible by cutting of other things if HS two had been cut long, long ago, or was even cut now. Um, um, if one or two other things were done, maybe water at least could be taken taken back. It would be a total scandal, a national disgrace, well, being a predatory ripoff by um, uh, shareholders and um, the management, uh, and inadequate uh, or, or catastrophically low uh, investment. Even some of the uh, um, uh, um, foul-ups at airports recently um, come about because of the partial privatization of air traffic control and then taking out of large div dividends. So these are these are types of, um, and of course some solid businesses have been damaged by um, vulture capitalism, taking them, taking them over like Boots was taken over, uh, supermarket Morrisons, and then loaded with debt, and then they extract some of the capital and leave it half dead. Mm. So all these types of um, uh, 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 capitalism are um, under the mechanical extension of privatization to um, areas where it should never have been extended. Um, um, uh, I think there's a strong, durable, large and undoubted popular majority in favor of that, 60 mm -hmm. or 70. I mean, I think even conservative voters, it's in excess of 50% who yep. favor renationalization. So why is that not in centrism? You know, Westminster Center is what have we got to do? We've got to cut down spending. We've got to have fiscal orbit off. You've got to have this. We've got to have that. Where is that there? It's overwhelming. That's not that central British view, the view of people of different ethnicities, different classes, different... Um, Opinions in other respects, different parties, etc. Is that these um, 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 uh, public utilities should be taken back into public ownership, and that's represented as an extreme view. It was it <laughs> wasn't extreme for generations, and it isn't extreme now. It's very sensible. Whether it's possible, sadly, is not clear because mm. um, it could cost a lot if you try to renationalize all of them. Uh, um, uh, but something could be done. Some of the most um, grievous uh, uh, aspects of privatization could be undone, I'm sure. And yet Labour isn't doing that. It's pursuing its centrism by p excluding the way Cameron and Osborne did uh, policies that, the Brit that a strong British, a large, strong British majority undoubtedly favors. They never, they never even get discussed. They're hardly raised at all. Mm. So 
I think that's a, but it won't hold because we don't know what's going to happen at the next election. Uh, um, it's, it's been changed by events in Scotland in which the Scottish National Party, I think, has lost probably for a generation uh, or forever um, its dominant role in Scottish politics. Other nationalist parties may expand and take over, but basically Labour's likely to have a comeback at the next election, and that could enable it to uh, have a working majority in, in Parliament. But if it does have a working majority in Parliament, it will face enormous problems of a possible Trump administration. How will they react to that? When your foreign secretary has literally been out, you know, years past protesting and saying all these crazy things. Yes, yeah, saying, and, and Thomas also said, I mean, yeah. they're, taking a, they're taking a big bet on Trump not getting back. Yeah. They're taking a big bet on, if not Trump, then on some tr other Trump-like leader not getting back. Mm. It is a very big bet. And it's not, it's, it's a near bet too. It's not, it's, a, it's we're talking about a year or a year and a half, uh, less than a year and a half. We'll know. And even if, uh, the Democrats, whether in the form of a very old Biden or some successor, um, um, win uh, uh, the next American presidential election. Even if that does happen, America is going to be deeply preoccupied with its own affairs because my one firm prediction about the American election is not about who will win. I, I think it's impossible to say at this point, but it's that whoever wins will be regarded as illegitimate by about a third or more of the American population. Mm. Uh, in other words, you're in a crisis of legit legitimacy in, in, in America, um, whoever wins. And so they'll be focused on themselves. They'll be trying to work that out. There's a danger of, um, not of civil war like in the 19th century, but of civil warfare, of that they just lose the capacity to of complete gridlock in Washington, or lose the capacity to have a proper functioning state, so it becomes a sort of semi-failed state. And in those circumstances, um, the rest of the world, Europe and so on, especially Europe, will be have to look after itself. So you could have another financial crisis, you could have a Wall Street crash, you could have all kinds of things, are realistic possibilities, even if global geopolitics doesn't get more um, lively, so to speak, by some kind of Chinese action on, um, on Taiwan, which would change the whole world, of course, not only because of what happened in Taiwan, but because of the Taiwanese production of computer chips and the fact that a huge part of world shipping passes through the China state. So these are all coming. How will, how will, how will a policy based on reviving the 90s, which, which actually with a few tweaks here and there, uh, um, the Starmer, uh, Rachel Reeves policy is basically of strengthening the, uh, um, the, the, uh, the, the post-Cold War neoliberal order. I mean, they've said, I mean, Reeves has said, to give her credit, she said, we, globalization of the old form is, is over. We've got to have security. We've got to have securonomics and what she, what she called. But how can that be, how can that be achieved within a, poly, within a framework of rigid fiscal orthodoxy of, um, and of not um, uh, being ready to, to um, to look at different ways of organizing utilities, different ways. How can it be achieved within, how can security, how can securonomics, if there is such a thing, be implemented um, within uh, the frameworks of the 90s, which is essentially what she's still doing. So I think this is a, a fundamental error and it will break down quite quickly because the, the whatever happens, 
globally in the global, and we are very exposed, we're a kind of mid-ranking power. America can, to some extent, close itself off. It can shut its autarkic. It's got, it's got now uh, many energy sources. It, it, can, it can focus on itself. It can become introverted. We can't. We're not a small power. We're a relatively large uh, economy still. Um, but we can't just ignore these huge um, uh, global uh, uh, forces. How, how will this, I, I predict it will be um, blown away. I mean, uh, or at least its policies will, uh, will be, final point, I mean, in this respect. Um, we're talking about the utilities and public services and so on. We've had long periods in the health service, in the railways and other parts of the public sector, long, long periods of strikes. Will these go away under Labour? Mm. Will um, uh, will people well say well Labour's? I don't think so at all. I think they'll. I think the the public sector unions will regard Labour as being as, um, as obstructive to their goals and their well-being and their incomes and so on as they've regarded the Conservatives. So those strikes will go on uh, unless there is there are substantial pay deals. And if there are substantial pay deals, how can that be achieved while respecting these supposedly inviolable limits mm. that Rachel Reeves and Keith, they can't be. So it will break down. They'll either, they'll either yield labor in power to these demands and then break the fiscal, and then there would be the danger of some kind of rerun of what happened under trust. Or they will um, try to hold the line and you'll be in a more or less permanent state, like in the 1970s, of chronic chronic industrial conflict. So I don't see how, how it can work. Let's talk about the other side of the equation that I set up earlier mm. then, mm. opposite populism, hyper-liberalism, hyper yeah. which you've recently written and described as a, quote, threat. Yeah. The progressive left, alt-liberalism, hyper-liberalism, yeah. call it what you will. Mm. Um, first of all, could I ask you for a definition of terms? And then whether yeah. or not, we've just been talking about Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer, yeah. you know, who embodies it in public life? Do you view them as a part of it? Are they more of a neoliberal? Mm. And why do you think hyperliberalism is a threat? Well, things blur into each other. So, I mean, I would say progressive liberalism in, in Britain and America has increasingly been um, a, a political project pursued um, outside of the normal political process. So in America, for example, at the moment, I think this is a fatal weakness, a fatal error on the part of the American left. The aim is as much to uh, destroy Trump legally through lawsuits, through lawfare, as it is to um, uh, defeat him in the public sphere of democratic debate. And one of the things that um, the progressive left, let's call it, has done, which I would distinguish from the old Labour left or the or the Woodrow Wilson left, or the post Cold War, the post Second World War left um, uh, of the past, has been to embody um, their values and their positions in laws, which basically then can only be challenged in the courts. So they've sort of abstained from. By the way, I wrote back in the 1990s. It's in my new book, New Leviathans, um, passage where I said that in the case of America, I could see America drifting into a position of deep. In, insoluble internal conflict by uh, its legalism, which was then embodied in philosophies such as that of John Rawls or Ronald Dworkin. Basically, the idea was you come up with a, almost an ideal constitution of liberties, and which are kind of all dovetail. They don't conflict with each other. You set those in place, and politics is what's left over. Well, first of all, basic freedoms don't uh, dovetail. They're often 
uh, disharmonious with one, one another. I want free speech. I want to be able to say what I can speak, say, but I don't want to be targeted by hate speech either. Um, so that's a conflict. And the conflict is rooted in something real, which is that we all have real interests which are conflict with each other. So the, the aim of politics is to get some kind of reasonable balance. We're shipped over time in that. But if you embed uh, uh, some political position as, as an unalterable right, then what then happens is the politicization of the, of the law. And I thought that would, I thought if America came undone, um, uh, it would be over abortion. I'm a pro-choice on abortion, so I would be a liberal on this. But I thought if once it was constitutionalized, the inevitable result would be that over time, opponents of that position would take over the judicial institutions, which they did under Trump. When I said that 30 years ago, absolutely thought I was crazed uh, because they assumed that the judicial institutions would be run by liberals. Well, <laughs> it's not, not an eternal truth. And now we found that he stacked the court in the United States with, um, um, there's now a non-liberal majority. So what could ha what happen? What happened over abortion could happen over gay marriage, could happen even over contraception. It could be a, all of these things uh, could happen. And then you're in a very difficult situation because uh, politics has been um, displaced into law. The law has been politicized. And since rights are normally uh, um, on or off, you either have them or you don't, they've been framed in such a way that there's not much room for compromise. You have, an, you have a, um, a deadly conflict then, actually, one which can very hard to resolve at all. So um, uh, that's progressive liberalism. Hyperliberalism, I suppose, is the, um, is the idea that... Um, um, uh, each individual or each group should be um, free to define itself as it pleases. Yeah, in other words, you can say, I'm not this, I'm that, really. It, you, human identities could be um, made up as you go along. And of course, uh, what I say in my, in the new book is that, I mean, Hobbes was sort of kind of aware of this in a way, because what he, he, he did see that words could be weapons. And uh, one of the features of uh, the hyperliberal period that we're now in is a, a tremendous um, uh, conflict, uh, an attempt to control language, very interesting kind of control language, certain expressions are forbidden. Now, there's, of course, there's some reason for that. I mean, after all, there have been uh, laws in this country against racism, against hatred for a long time. In fact, practically all liberal democracies that still exist in one form or another, except America, Maybe one or two, but they all have them. Every European, pretty well, maybe I'm not sure about Denmark, but pretty well everybody have these. So these are normal and long predate. But if you extend them to cover more and more different topics, if they become more and more, then there's a, con then there's a danger that um, what was originally uh, intended as a restriction uh, uh, curbs on uh, racist and um, other hate speech become ways of even smothering anything that's deemed offensive. So you can have enough jokes can be offensive, not because they're rabid, just offensive to some kind of sentiment. And I think the the danger of that is it become very censorious, but also um, um, it becomes a kind of competition in who's the most offended. Can that be as much of a threat, though, as that which is posed by populism in the way that you've just described? Do you think they're on an equal footing? Do you view hyperliberalism as more of a threat than, than the populist one? Well, they're different because the populists, in a sense, um, who, as I discussed earlier on, I think are really, um, uh, populism is, is largely created in its uh, present form by hyperliberalism or liber progressive liberalism, but they're different because um, 
the interesting thing is the populists do want power. Um, they do want to use the state to um, uh, promote their goals. Uh, whereas liberals, hyper-liberals, actually, interestingly enough, they haven't had that much power in the, I mean, the hyper-liberal forms of cancellation and um, censorship and, are actually self-imposed. It's not the government, whether it's conservative or not. It's, it's not Joe Biden who's going around shutting places down and so on. It's actually civil society. It's actually deciding to police them, to police themselves. And that's something that I think um, people uh, um, uh, uh, should understand more than they do, because the, the result of it is not actually a, uh, an authoritarian state. That could come from various forms of populism, for example. But it's more of a sort of fragmented and fractured society, which isn't able to do anything. Uh, it's a different. It's a different model. Actually, it's more like a Hobbesian state, a, a kind of um, uh, not necessarily violent, but a, a Hobbesian state of nature of different kind, which each group is struggling with other groups over public resources or particular institutions that are, might not even be public, might be private, um, um, which um, uh, for resources and status and uh, uh, as well. And so they're really. Um, uh, in many ways, although they're reciprocally related, dialectically related, populism and hyperliberalism are uh, are different in that respect. The normal result of hyperliberalism is, is weak states, weak governments, uh, not able to do anything. And that, I think, is more like the case in Britain now, because whatever you think about what ought to be done, should more houses be built or uh, to alleviate problems of younger generations having nowhere to buy or not, it's actually very difficult to implement a, a policy because it'd be challenged immediately in the courts. In other words, one of the features of this hyper, progressive and hyper-liberalism is to move decision-making out of the sphere of government, things that governments can just decide, uh, and into um, NGOs or, or legal processes. So, if, so the government says, we'll print more, we'll, um, we'll build more houses, try and do it, it's immediately blocked. Now, you might say, well, that's good on environmental law grounds, but it does mean that nothing ever happens. It does mean that um, um, it's very different. Uh, it does mean even that, uh, I mean, even if HS2 is cancelled, which I hope it is, tremendous waste of money, there might be a plethora of lawsuits emerging from that. People who say that we've had these contracts, we've blah, 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 blah. Take forever to cancel it. Might never be cancelled, actually, actually. So you get into a position of paralysis, and that's quite different from... Um, what the populists are. Um, I mean, we haven't yet had a fully populist government anywhere in Europe. We, I suppose we did in America with Trump, there was in America with Trump for, for a while. Although if he does have a second run, I think it'll be a little more radical than he was then. Um, not because he <laughs> thought about it at all, but because he'll want to get revenge on his enemies and he'll, he'll, he'll make a bonfire of international treaties. He did all kinds of things that he wanted to do the first time and uh, or might be able to do now. But but what would happen if there were a full scale, what would happen if, for example, um, it's quite conceivable in Europe now, um, if uh, Le Pen, Marine Le Pen, um, won the next presidential election. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? Mm. I mean, it'd be terrifying as well, but it would be interesting because, remember, she got over 40% of the vote. Not two, and it was actually a lot of young people voted for mm -hmm. her as well. But why did they vote for her? Not because they're Nazis or fascists. They have the least to lose. 
by that. They, have, they don't have large savings. They don't have uh, long careers. They, they live in a position of precariousness. So they have the least to, lo to lose. It's, um, uh, there could easily be, uh, I mean, contrary to in Britain, large sections of European young people vote for right and par far right parties, mm -hmm. even populist parties. Why is that? Because they're suffering from uh, the um, um, downsides of uh, neoliberal economics and neoliberal market policy, market liberalism. That's why. John Gray, uh, we've run out of time. Thank That's you. fine. We've covered a lot of ground. We have. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, New Leviathans, out now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.